Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back for another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast. Um, and today's guest is Gerard Barron, who's the CEO and chairman of Deep Green, um, a company aiming to source the metals the world needs, um, whether that's on land or in the ocean, uh, for sustainable future with this environmental and social impact. Um, Gerald's uh, an entrepreneur with a, a track record of building global companies in battery technology, media, um, and future resource development, both as a chief executive and a strategic investor. Um, and he became involved in the early development and financing of Deep Green um, during, his, during the actual formation of the company in 2011. Um, and he stepped into the role of chairman and CEO uh, in the last few years. So I'm really excited to get Gerald on the podcast. Um, he's on a mission to explore the unknown and to help find a more sustainable future for our planet. Um, so I'm keen, keen to really hear his story. So I'd like to welcome Gerard. How are you doing, Gerard? Hey, Rob, I'm well. Thank you for having me on the show. No, I appreciate you, you taking the time to, uh, to do this podcast and uh, obviously share your journey. Um, so yeah, can you just tell us a little bit about your background? Um, I, I have actually seen you speak at a few conferences. So um, yeah, I just wonder if you can um, share with the audience a little bit about yourself, about your background, maybe from early days to, to where you are, how your career has uh, developed and, and your journey. So people get an understanding of uh, who Gerard is. Well, it was a very logical, uh, easy to understand path. I started life as a dairy farmer in uh, Queensland and uh, went to university, started my first company there, and I um, have been fortunate enough to build some great companies around the world ever since, and ranging from battery technology in China back in the early 90s and um, uh, the telecommunications industry, I built a, a business which we sold to Singtel and then in 2001 I built a, I uh, started a software as a service company which I, I grew to about 30 countries but I was always a very curious investor and um, not that I was a big investor with a lot of money but I was always attracted to you know new ideas and big challenges and so I originally um, backed a friend of mine into a business called Nautilus way back in 2001. I, I'd never invested in a mining company before, but I, I figured there was a better way of getting metals than digging up a mountainside. And so, you know, for me, while, while Nautilus was an interesting journey for many, uh, for me it was a great success. And we, uh, but I sold out of it. It's real, it's giving, it's, it's gift to me was learning about nodules. And of course, when we started Deep Green in 2011, it was an obvious thing to get involved in again, and um, so I, I helped David raise a uh, raise all the money. I invested a lot of money myself, and and then a few years ago, I decided the business needed to head in a, a different direction. So I stepped into the role of running it, and here we are today. 
Okay. Um, one of you can just yeah give us a brief overview uh, of Deep Green um, sure. and what 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 you're looking to do in the industry. So you know a lot has been uh, spoken about ocean metals and of yeah. course um, what Deep Green is about is exploring and extracting the the metals contained in polymetallic nodules in the on the high seas in particular yeah. in the Clary and Clipperton zone. And so we hold three license areas, each of them are 75,000 square kilometers in size. Uh, they're sponsored by developing nations. Uh, the licenses are granted to us by the International Seabed Authority, who are the, the regulator who govern the high seas. Okay. Uh, they were set up in 1994 by the United Nations. Um, most of the nations of the world, there's 168 member countries. And so they um, handed us, we applied, and we were granted exploration licenses. And right now, we're very busy completing the pre-feasibility and feasibility work. And we will be lodging uh, an application to move into exploitation in 2022. Okay. Um, whereabouts are these licenses? Yeah, so they were, they're all in the Clary and Clipperton zone. That's our area of focus. And, yeah. and we all know that the oceans are filled with metals, and, um, but they come in several forms. They come in the form of sulfides, which is what uh, Nautilus were very focused on, you know, these chimneys that, or vents that come out where the tectonic plates meet, and they, they come in the form of seafloor crusts. So we are not focused on them at all because to, to extract those metals, you have to go down and mine them. You know, you've got to turn big rocks into little rocks. It's a, it's a mining operation. Whereas polymetallic nodules, which are our focus, literally lay on the seafloor. And yeah. so um, we're about 1,000 miles off the coast of Mexico and um, it's about 4,000 meters deep. And they were discovered way back in the 1870s by a, a British expedition funded by the Royal Society and people wanted to know what lay on the bottom of the ocean and so they sailed around the world. Uh, the, the, the steam piston had been uh, invented and so they were able to haul off a, a dredge and pull it up and they recovered nodules in many locations. But, but this is the area of interest and the reason for that is very high abundance and very high grades of nickel, copper and cobalt. Right. That's because of the, uh, you know, these nodules precipitate the metals that are in the water or on the in the ocean sediment, and the Rockies and Andes provided all of the feedstock that made this a very valuable deposit today. Okay, and so what's the sort of scalability of producing battery metals from from these modules, um, and is it cost effective enough? If it, and I suppose if it hasn't necessarily been done yet. Um, I suppose whereabouts are you drawing the data from to see whether it is cost cost effective and viable? Yeah, no, good questions. And um, we to understand that we have to go back to the 1970s. And so they started to collect nodules. They built the harvesters. There were many different companies involved: Mitsubishi and um, Kennecott, now part of Rio Tinto, Shell and BP, and, and many others. And they successfully built the harvesters that were deployed on the ocean floor. But the, the challenge with the 1970s was no one had worked out who owned the ocean. Yeah. And so when Henry Kissinger wrote to all of the ambassadors at the United Nations and said, look, 
you know, for the good of the world, we want to collect these nodules. So we want to lay claim to this part of the Pacific. And of course, all the ambassadors got together and said, well, that doesn't sound too equitable. Uh, no, thanks. And so they all had to go home. And so, so we're very fortunate to have an enormous amount of data dating back from the 70s. And of course, uh, a lot's happened since then. The, the offshore oil and gas industry has developed. Uh, yep. Cable lane and uh, trenching pipeline has become a big industry. And so the technology and the expertise available to us now is, is uh, abundant. Whereas back then, it was all being developed for the first time, really. And so that helps us enormously. And, and you asked about how big is it? Well, you know, it's big. Yeah. There's about 34 billion tons in the whole area. But of course, some of the area is, has already been put aside for preservation reasons. But yeah. we hold three licenses. Um, we have a resource statement. We're a Canadian company, so we're 43-101 compliant. And on one of the blocks, we have around 900 million tons. And on the other block, we have around 750 million tons of these nodules. Now, you know, that's enough to, um, to build just under 300 million electric vehicle batteries. So it's, right, okay. it, it's a big deposit. Yeah. And in, and in terms of cost, cost effectiveness and viability, from a, I suppose from a cost perspective, Yep. How have you sort of, I suppose, how have you come to some of these conclusions and whether it is viable or are you not necessarily at that stage yet? No, I think we are. I mean, look, the proof is always in the pudding. Right? Yeah. And so, like the engineers who solved the problems back in the 70s, um, one of the ways that we've dealt with the technology risk is by involving industrial partners like Maersk, one of our shareholders for the last few years, at all seas who invested um, in the company last year, about 12 months ago, and are now building our pilot mining system. Now, all seas are one of the world's largest layers of pipe in the yep. deep ocean. So they see this as a nice challenge. You know, they, um, they have a big team of around 100 engineers working on this, and they see it as something that will replace pipeline in the future. Because if you're in the oil and gas services industry, and this has been a, you know, one of our theses, that the, the decline of oil and gas services creates a great opportunity for us to attract those companies and their talents and their assets into this new industry. Yeah. So I guess when we sit and, and look at this, it's one thing to, to do it theoretically. But of course, people like all C's, you know, have, bring great experience to that. And so... But the honest answer, Rob, is we won't know until we're in production. Okay, yeah. we can model it. It's it's like a um, it's a bulk commodity. I mean, you know, these nodules literally lay on the ocean floor. Just think of a golf driving range yeah. with billions of golf balls on them, trillions of golf balls on them, and we don't have to dig for them or blast or tunnel. We just have to go and collect them. And so, I guess from that perspective, um, you know, it's if a you simple can, process. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's not for me to say it's simple. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It sounds simple, but... but it, like, say it's very simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you, you mentioned, obviously, oil and gas, already doing things, obviously, on the uh, in the ocean, obviously, pipeline, they're doing things in the ocean, and it, it just, obviously, mining is always the industry that um, is following up from behind, uh, and the last ones to, to adopt 
anything uh, adopt new things that are coming coming online but like like you said i suppose it follows suit if if the um, oil and gas industry starts to slow down and obviously run out reserves this could be their their, their alternative yeah that's absolutely. for some of these companies yeah, I think so. I mean, um, if you're a oil and gas company, what are you going to do? You're going to you're going to build wind farms. Some of them do. Um, yeah. Or you're going to find something that replaces fossil fuels. I know shareholders are probably will be saying, "Just give me the money back, thank you." Yeah. Um, we'll let we'll let the experts go and do this. But I think a lot of those oil companies are saying, "Look, we've got a lot of expertise. Um, this is consistent with the energy business that we operate in." It's just a different type of energy, and um, yeah. So, but we'll see. I yeah. mean, you'll if you look at our shareholder list, you don't see mining companies in there, you know. You, but you do see participants from the offshore oil and gas industry. Um, yeah. The exception being Glencore, who are a very small shareholder. But um, but you know, will they come? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I have to wait and see. But you never know. It could be a future joint venture partnership where, if there is scope for for more of this then mm. you might see a few mining companies coming together with oil and gas companies um, yep. and create a new whole market. Yeah, entirely. And I think yeah. that's um, that's kind of been our strategy, right? I mean, we we have 225,000 square kilometers of area and, um, you know, the resource certainty is very high. You know, you because it sits on the seafloor, you, you see it. The only thing you're testing is grade and... Um, and so the grade is very, very consistent across the entire resource as well. So, you know, we fully acknowledge that we will need some of those big industrial partners, like maybe the big mining companies or the big energy companies, uh, to help really bring the scale necessary because that's what they do very, very well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, can sort of deep sea mining compete with, obviously, traditional land-based metal mining um, and if so, to what extent? Mm. Well, I didn't get around to your question on cost, but one okay, of the yeah. cost drivers, um, you know, it's it, it grade, of course. You know, that's the that's probably one of the biggest impactors on the viability of a of a project, and. The grade of our nodules is off the charts. I mean, on the area where we have 900 million tons, we have around 1.3% nickel, we have around 1.1% copper, 0.2% cobalt, and about 30% manganese. Now, if we put all of that into copper equivalents, it, it would be over 6.5% copper equivalent. So, I mean, you know that in 2018, the average grade of copper mined was less than half of 1%. So that grade has a big bearing on the project economics. And so we're very confident that we will operate at the bottom end of that cost curve. And um, it's primarily a nickel project. About half of the revenue comes from nickel. And I think in the future, nickel is going to be a very good business to be in um, because we will not just compete on price. Price, we will operate at the bottom end of the cost curve. But if you look at the environmental benefits of, of metals in, from the ocean, from polymetallic nodules in particular, compared to land-based metals, I, I think they're night and day. And, you know, I think consumers are going to, you know, be more aware of this in the future when they buy products, they all want to support brands where they can know where the products or the materials that were used to make that product have come from and at what cost, you know, how much 
CO2 was generated, how much carbon was sequestered, how much water was used, how much, how many trees were felled, how much child labor did you use to make this? And the, the amazing thing that we'll be able to do is measure every single thing. You know, we'll use some sort of blockchain technology to yeah. to make sure that we we can tell you when we collected it, where it was shipped to, when it was processed, who we delivered it to, and hopefully what, what car it's driving around in. And, of course, you know, our, our mission as a company is to make sure that every single atom that we put into the system, we get back as well for recycling purposes because, you know, I think we all understand there are some big challenges uh, we face as a, as a planet. And, you know, the extractive industry has to change its way. You know, yeah. we're heading more to closed-loop economies and, um, you know, we want to be one of the drivers of that. Yeah, certainly. Um, in your assessment, what um, what sets nodules apart from land-based ore grades? Um, mm. And what is the estimated abundance of minerals in the Claricum uh, Clipton zone? Yeah, sure. Well, <clears throat> what what separates us goes back to how they were formed. And so nodules precipitate the metals that are in the water in which they uh, sit and in the sediment upon which they sit. And so, you know, these nodules are found in other oceans around the world, but they're not worth recovering. They don't have any nickel or copper. And so these nodules grow very slowly over a very long period of time. And so if you have an abundance of nickel and copper, which, which we do, it's, it ties in with the Rockies and the Andes that were once covered in nickel and copper. So as all of those metals eroded into the ocean and settled either in the ocean seawater or, or on the ocean floor, that's what created this uh, very valuable feedstock for these nodules. Now, um, if we think about uh, abundance, you know, if I just think about nickel, you know, we, well, it's estimated there's 270 mil million tons of nickel in this area. Okay. Yeah. million tons. Now, last year, we used about 2.6 million tons in the whole market. Now, let's say nickel does continue to grow because it, it forms the basis of um, car batteries and storage batteries as well as being used in steel. Let's say it doubles in, you know, 25 years. Well, you know, that's a lot of nickel still. And if it's going to come down to not just lowest cost producers, but it will come down to, you know, what's been the environmental impact of collecting this. And, um, and consumers, I think, will go with uh, companies who are using metals with the lowest impacts, both from a social uh, community perspective and from an environmental perspective. Okay. Yeah, no, I fully understand that. Um, what efforts are being made to ensure uh, that Deep Green's impact on the seabed is minimised, which I, I suppose you, you, you mentioned, obviously, around the environmental issues. Um, yeah. So, yeah, appreciate if you can obviously tell us a little bit more around that because, obviously, again, it's, it's pretty new. Um, so, yeah, appreciate what kind of measures are being put in place. Yeah, well, right now um, we are kicking off the largest ever seafloor to ocean top environmental study. And so last year we positioned environmental monitoring, uh, we call them moorings that, that sit in the ocean, on the ocean floor and in the ocean water column, collecting data um, about 
what's going on there. We'll be back out to service those moorings very shortly. And so, and then we have around um, 50 independent research studies, research programs that go to make up our environmental impact assessment. And so, so we're still in that uh, discovery phase. And so now our hunch is that collecting metal, these nodules from 4,000 meters below sea level is a better thing to be doing than ripping up rainforests or, yeah. or the land-based damage. But there are some people who will say, well, you know, we think we should leave the oceans alone. And... Um, because you know you're going to have an impact on the ocean floor, and I, I guess if we think about that, I can't think of anything on the planet that we can do that doesn't have an impact. Yeah. You know, we think we're going to drive an electric vehicle because it's good for the planet, but you know, to we need to understand where the materials <laughs> yeah, certainly come from, right? Yeah. And then we plug it into the grid and how's the grid being powered? So it's a very complex system. And so we carried out or we funded a, a very extensive white paper uh, which we're just about to launch. It's been very heavily peer-reviewed over the last uh, four or five months. And it looked at a full life cycle analysis of what are the impacts if we get these metals for the green transition from land-based sources. And we assume that the land-based miners would also become more efficient, use renewable power and so on. Or if we got the metals from nodules. And, and look, the study was very uh, extensive. It was independently authored, even though we funded it. And the results are quite compelling that, you know, let me just start with CO2. If we include sequestered carbon, you know, you'll generate 90% less CO2 if you build that battery cathode using ocean metals from nodules compared to land-based. And there's a there's a many, many different categories, which I, I won't list, but you can find information about it on our website. But then it comes down to, okay, what are people concerned about? And people's main concerns are about biodiversity loss. Yeah. And secondly, about the plume, you know, the dust that gets kicked up. And yeah. where will it travel to? What will its impact be? So, you know, it's a very heavily studied area. Um, we've now done... Um, just last year, hundreds of box score samples. We've surveyed uh, using AUVs and other survey techniques our entire 75,000 square kilometers on one of our blocks. Um, we've, we've surveyed about 65,000 square kilometers on another one of our blocks. So we have an enormous amount of data, and we also have scientists who sit on every cruise. We've, our boat's always on the water going out to the area. And, you know, these environmental studies are absolutely a foundation of the work we're doing right now. Because, you know, if you think about collecting the nodules, look, it has challenges, but it, it can be done. Yeah. Turning the nodules into battery materials, you know, we've, we've chosen a flow sheet that we can point to operating in many other – we can point yeah. to the flow sheet working in many other parts uh, on the planet for land-based metals. Because nodules, they're quite analogous to nickel laterites. So, um, so it's not hard to imagine how we turn them into battery materials. So the real risk is around environment. And, and of course, every single thing we do has a cost um, on the planet. And the question will be, are we, can we accept these impacts with the known externalities of land-based mining? And, you know, when, when they're there for us to see, you know, because we don't have to imagine the impacts of mining, you know, we know what they are. Yeah. Uh, so, 
the question will be, you know, can we produce battery materials, you know, at an, ex at an acceptable cost? And I, I think from our perspective, it, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to just think about why it would be better. You know, you don't have to go and build lots of fixed infrastructure. You know, we, we, we collect these nodules, we have a production vessel, it's all mobile, it, it moves along a little bit like you would um, harvest a paddock of wheat, you know, okay. you yeah. mobile, mobile capital. Then we put them on a ship for transportation and the ship can travel north, south, east or west. And mm -hmm. so we're not hemmed in by infrastructure cons constraints. And of course, um, we, we also have the ability to dynamically change what we're doing we, we're constantly assessing through our digital twin program and we're anticipating you know what's happening on the ocean floor and if we came across an area of particular high biodiversity then you know we would change our behavior we'd go somewhere else we'd leave that area unattached and so you know the adaptive management techniques um, that have been developed in other industries and we can just take them to a new level means that you know, we think the impacts will, will be very minimal. And, of course, then we, we get to the engineering side and, you know, we have an amazing partner in all seas who have been developing a collector system which with environmental impact in mind. You know, we want to minimize the impact. And, and you know, they, they would uh, – we had a review meeting less than a week ago uh, because – they have to deliver this system to us the middle of next year. Yeah. And, you know, when you get all these great engineering minds working to solve these new challenges, it's amazing what solutions come your way. And, and you know, the uh, Gonda effect, which basically, you know, was, was discovered way back, almost 100 years ago, which, which basically allows you to, um, you know, push a, a, a jet flow and will be able to collect these nodules without really digging or without having to do, make much impact on the ocean floor at all. But, you know, essentially using those sorts of well-known techniques and applying them to this resource, you know, we can find ways of minimizing that impact. And um, whereas if you think about a potato harvester, uh, what a potato harvester does is goes and digs up the soil and spits the dirt back out and puts the potato potatoes aside we won't be doing any of that you know we're going to be basically uh, traversing the seafloor and using our collector system and um, you know our, our jet system which takes advantage of the Gwanda effects you know collecting nodules and, and making as minimal impact as we can so and these will be improved as we go forward yeah. you know there will be lots of enhancements made as this industry develops and so look i think it's going to be very exciting you know at the moment it's um you know a lot of the talk does get heavily skewed by the environmental groups who are quite noisy but we're about to go through an enormous period of discovery you know this is going to be exciting like little Boys and girls were excited about going to the moon or, you know, this is about going to an entirely new environment. It's called the ocean floor and, it, and sitting on the ocean floor provides some really important answers to how we're going to tackle climate change. And through collaborating with science and, and research organizations, we might also find some amazing health discoveries as well. Who knows? Yeah. We might find 
the coronavirus solution down there. <laughs> yeah, you never, you never know. No, it, it sounds interesting and, and fascinating. Um, I've got a couple of questions that I've asked you, and one was just based on what you just said. Uh, first, Firstly, how deep are the areas that you're mining in? Um, obviously, I suppose there's different different depths, but roughly what depths are we talking about? And secondly, um, obviously you mentioned, obviously, um, oh, my question is, what, what sort of um, opposition have you had in, in what you're doing? Um, has most people been for it or has some people been against it, but they may not actually know what, what I suppose, what you're actually doing and what the result could be? Sure. Well, the depth is easy. It's between 4,000 and 5,000 meters. Okay. So it's so steep. And, yeah. But a lot of that, you know, there's a, equipment is generally rated to, you know, 3,000 or 5,000 or 6,000 meters. And so, you know, we don't see any real challenges, whether it's 4,000 meters or 3,000 meters. Yeah. Um, I can say that as a non-engineer, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> To anyone I've offended with that throwaway comment, um, but if we talk about opposition, um, generally, when we present our story, people will walk away with a positive impression. People get excited. And um, last year, we w we featured on sixty minutes, and you know they they had opposition on the program as well, but. Wow, I was knocked over with the response. We had thousands of, of people reach out afterwards, and not a single criticism came our way. It was all more people being excited and thinking, can I invest in your company, or can I get involved, or good on you? And so where the opposition comes from are the environmental groups who say, look, we've seen what mining has done to land, yeah. and you're just going to go and screw the ocean floor up like the mining industry did to – the terrestrial environments. Now, you know, so so there's a there's a percentage of society, and I put it at five percent, that we will never convince that this Everyone. is an acceptable risk. Yeah, and you're not going to convince every single person out there. No, um, you learn that very quickly that that you've just got to move on. You yeah, know, because those same people want us to stop mining altogether. You know, I don't know where on earth we're going to get the materials from. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And, I, and I, again, I suppose, especially a lot of these protesters, which I've been, I've seen at some of the conferences I've been to, um, again, they're probably not, they're not informed um, and educated around what mining is and what mining does for our planet and how we live. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I understand. But yeah, I suppose, yeah, you may get, I suppose, a small percentage of people opposing to you, but it sounds like obviously uh, weight, it outweighs more than the positive people that are, that, um, are for you and, and encouraging you to carry on what you're doing. I think so. And I, but, but we have to be a um, acceptable risk, right? We yeah. have to earn that social license. And, you know, one of our commitments is to travel in the open, to be very transparent with what we're doing on our successes and our challenges and failures. And to make sure that, you know, one of our other commitments we make are that showstoppers are showstoppers. If we came across something that said this was not the right thing to be doing or the best alternative to source virgin ores, then we would pivot. We would do something else. We would say, I'm sorry, we can't do this anymore. We've got to go back to the drawing board. And who knows? We, we may withdraw from that industry. But yeah. as we sit here today, 
the evidence I think is compelling that we should be keep keep on going. And of course, some of those opponents will also say, uh, "Well, what we don't know enough. We should have a moratorium for ten years." And I just think it's a very irresponsible position to take because through the collaboration of commercial enterprise such as us, we are funding all the research. So. Yeah. The time to have that debate with us is when we've completed the research and submitted our environmental impact assessment. Yeah. You don't want to be stopping companies like us exploring because that's how we're going to learn more about what what is 4,000 meters and below sea level. And, and you know, if you think about um, what is 4,000 meters below sea level, it's a pretty, it's a little bit like a moonscape, you know, yeah. the very little food and energy down there. And so you don't see fish swimming around. I mean, there are there have been pictures of fish, but no one has ever seen a fish on our areas, ever. Uh, yeah. Being out there cruising. Um, the organisms, are, because there's no food or very little food, they're tiny. You know, like yeah. on, on one of our um, scientific expeditions last year when the, the boat arrived back the research team was showing me around and they said oh, come and meet our monster you know and we thought wow this what are we going to see and it was it was literally something about an inch and a quarter long it was <laughs> right okay that, so yeah. that's the biggest living that's right living because, thing down in that area exactly and yeah. of course we when we compare the the seafloor from a biodiversity perspective it's a totally different comparison to land-based mm. because on land, you know, we stop measuring uh, vertebrates. You know, we, we are not measuring tiny microorganisms um, as we are because on the ocean floor, that's pretty well all there is. Yeah. And so a lot of those um, organisms will simply, they're embedded in the soil, they'll travel through our system because our, our harvester is there to, you know, collect nodules and it leaves the, the seafloor sediment back on the seafloor. Yeah. So it might shake them up a little bit. They might wonder what's going on, but we don't think it's going to kill them. Now, if you're a tiny sea cucumber sitting on a nodule, that may be different. Yeah. But it, it, it goes back to making people understand what the alternatives are and, you know, what are the impacts if we don't change, you know, the supply supply lines? And then, you know, of course, there's a new element that we've always talked about that people are starting to listen, and that is how fragile the current supply lines are. Because, you know, we've seen through uh, the coronavirus that several things. One is that, you know, if you have a high dependency of a certain set of materials coming out of a certain marketplace, whether it's China for battery materials or whether it's parts of Africa for certain commodities, if if those industries close down, then the knock-on impacts are enormous. Yeah. And so more optionality about where those minerals come from, I think, is a good thing for society. And secondly, the geopolitical risks. You know, I think that China is a has done a magnificent job of tying up the battery materials market. And I think, you know, the West has been left, you know, asleep at the wheel. And I think that will change. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems it definitely. Yeah. Um, What's, what's been the, the, the progress on uh, Deep Green's nodule collection and riser system? Mm. Well, we have um, all these presented to us um, 
few days ago, and we, you might have seen in the press, uh, we recently announced with All Seas that they had acquired a production vessel. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a 228-meter-long ex-drill ship from the oil and gas industry, and it was, you know, uh, an asset worth just under a billion dollars um, eight years ago, and of course now it is. It either goes to the junkyard, the steel scrapyard, or it gets reapplied to an industry like ours. And yep. so, um, you know, that's very, a very exciting development from our perspective. So we'll have that vessel on the, the area next year doing the pilot mining trials, and it will also be our first production vessel. And so it already has a riser on it. Um, and so it's essentially it's a, it's a vessel that I won't say is – Perfect, but it will be with very slight modifications. And then, um, you know, the progress is we'll have our pilot mining system in the water middle of next year. So, you know, it's it's moving fast. And, you know, we're not far away um, from first production. We anticipate that we'll be shipping product to customers in 2023. Yeah. And so, um, you know, some of the impacts that – have been felt through coronavirus. Uh, we're lucky not to have some of those impacts because of where we operate. But you know, we might see some some of that come down with equipment suppliers and so on. But it's, yeah. it's a little bit hard to tell at this moment. Yeah, I understand. Um, I've done obviously a little bit of research before um, before we started speaking, um, and I noticed there's been uh, a lot has been made in the press recently about. Um, how deep sea mining will damage the uh, seabed ecosystems, I, and I know you've covered, covered, uh, obviously covered that. Um, but how did you sort of respond to those claims? Um, well, how I respond to them is, you're absolutely right. We will impact them, of yeah. course. We will. Yeah. Show me, show me where we, as mankind, can do anything without having an impact. The question is, what are those impacts, and how do they compare to the known alternatives? Now, once again, I'm not saying a microscopic worm isn't of importance. You know, why is a tiny worm that you barely can see with the naked eye more valuable than the than the, the furry-tailed, big-eyed um, marsupial that's at risk of extinction through... Uh, in the Philippines, you know, so I'm not asking society to make those those decisions, but I know which way I'd go yep. if I had a choice. And I also think that if if we were to, if Mother Nature were to put a resource of this scale anywhere out of harm's way on the planet, 4,000 meters below sea level, a thousand miles from the nearest land, is a pretty good place to be putting it. And it's like if I was to describe it, and, you know, we've surveyed the entire area, so we know what it's like, that it would be like walking into the middle of the, the Sahara Desert, you know, yeah. but less undulating. It's much flatter. It's called the Abyssal Plain. It's, 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 uh, it's, a, it's the largest desert on the planet. It just happens to be on the ocean floor. Yeah. It just goes for thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. And, um, you know, we're not talking about there being any coral reefs or any plants or there's no, there's not much going on down there. Yeah. Um, obviously, we mentioned about environmental um, uh, impacts. 
What would you say the main differences are in sort of environmental and social impacts between um, obviously land-based resources um, and obviously the deep ocean counterparts? Yeah, well, I think that's that's something I could really talk on all day. And if anyone's interested, you can go to our website at, at uh, www.deep.green and you can download a copy or the executive summary of our white paper because that's exactly what we studied. Yeah. Now, okay, let's let's think about it from a societal perspective. Um, you know, mining brings economic prosperity. You know, and I'm, I'm not here to have a go at the mining industry to local communities, but it also brings a lot of disruption as well. You know, it means that sometimes communities have to move, you know, where they've been settled for hundreds of years. It means that they're at risk of being impacted by tailings dams, as we've seen in, in um, Brazil recently. Yeah. It means that a lot of the economic prosperity doesn't stay in the local villages, it actually gets exported because it's controlled by multinationals. It means that water usage that would otherwise be put to agriculture gets redirected into the mining industry. And that has an impact. It means that land that could be used as carbon sinks or for agricultural purposes is being utilized for mining or for the infrastructure required for the mining. It means that you know, there are lots of societal impacts because the list will just go on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, whereas if I think about the impacts that we make, so we're a thousand miles from the nearest land point, um, we build our system wherever it makes sense, we sail it on out there, um, we'll build a processing system where it makes sense, somewhere near a deep water port. Yeah somewhere with power, with water, with infrastructure, and somewhere in a safe jurisdiction because sovereign risk is one of the biggest challenges faced by the mining industry. And even in these developing countries that are so desperate to attract foreign investment, getting a new mine permitted is a big challenge. It certainly is, yeah. And so I don't know where you go. And so I think when I when I look at the comparisons that – they're becoming more apparent, the benefits of ocean metals compared to land-based. And of course, COVID-19 further emphasizes that because of the geopolitical side and because of what are now obvious to us all, very fragile supply chain systems as well. Yeah, um, which probably goes on to my next question. Um, and obviously, time of this uh, recording is... Um, sort of the start of COVID-19 here in the UK. Um, how how actually might COVID-19, the epidemic, impact the sort of uh, battery metal supply chains um, if it hasn't sort of already? Yeah. Well, you know, I think um, consumers will stop buying electric vehicles. We know yeah. no one's buying anything at the moment. So the question is, how long does it take for things to return to normal? Um, will it be 90 days? Will it be 180 days? Yeah. Will it be 365? We don't know. But what we do know is that they will return to normal. It might be a new normal, but they will return. And yeah. I think the, the thing that has become apparent through COVID-19 is what a future with renewable energy might look like. 
you know, you look at the NOx graphs that have been published this year for the first 90 days compared to the same time last year, it's compelling, right? When you shut down industry and stop burning fossil fuels, whether it's through manufacturing or whether it's through transportation or all of those things combined, it, it it's an insight into why we need to act more urgently when it comes to these crises. And yep. Climate is one of the crises. And so, like, we all knew that pandemics were a risk, but we didn't do a lot about it. And climate's the same thing. And I think people will, you know, have a fresh approach. I'm seeing it already with regards to uh, our investors and other investors that we're talking to. But on the supply chain side, you know, a lot of these big projects that are being developed have had to go on hold. And we don't know whether they'll stay on hold for 30 days or a year. And getting them started again can be challenging. And, and in some cases, because commodity prices have fallen away, it might be even more challenging. Now, you know, I think it's safe to say that when you take supply out of a the market, then the, there will come a time when the elasticity between demand and GDP will mean that commodity prices will skyrocket. Yeah. I think that's what we will see because the I, tra- believe, I believe so as well. Yeah, the transition away from fossil fuels was already creating this big new demand driver. Okay, because we we know that to build a small electric vehicle battery you need around sixty kilograms of nickel and seven kilograms of cobalt. And the plan is to build a billion of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also we want to put storage batteries in our houses. So so we might skip a year because of COVID. But I think what we'll do what will happen is we'll come back and some of the new tier one projects that were hopeful of coming online in the foreseeable are either going to be delayed or may not even get there. And I think that's going to make people panic. And I, I you know, I, I've seen it in conversations we're having with governments right now. You know, like we're all landlocked, but I got to say it's a very productive time in the economy. And governments are starting to, to say we need to attract new industry, we need to attract jobs, but we need to attract industries that can can protect our supply chain, our industries, when it comes to the green economy as well. And battery materials are going to be key to that. And, you know, the size and scale of this resource is, you know, it's, it doesn't compare to anything else on land. Yeah. And, you know, we know there are big undeveloped projects in the Congo, but you don't see the majors going there. Yeah. It comes with risks that it's hard to see how they're going to be overcome. And so I think that, you know, we'll see demand come back, we'll see supply not having responded, and just look at the stock market and, you know, the major producers, they're all going to protect their dividends, they're going to try and protect their balance sheets, and they're not going to put the money into new development of projects. And that's going to further accentuate this shortage, which is going to skyrocket commodity prices. And so we're going to need new supply lines. Yeah. And I think another commodity is copper as well, which is needed in vast amounts uh, for battery and electric cars. Um, I think I think you need four four times as much copper in uh, in electric vehicles. And that's just the vehicle side. That's without obviously um, stations to charge up to charge these vehicles up and obviously the um, infrastructure and copper that's needed for that. And I know 
copper mines take a very long time to actually, well, firstly discover and then actually build that mine. I think I heard a figure at one of the conferences takes anywhere between seven to thirty years to yeah. sort of build a build a copper mine. Copper mine. Yeah. So we're way short of commodities mm. uh, uh, for the demand that is that yeah. is required by some yeah. of these governments that have promised that things are going to happen in certain within certain timeframes. Yes, no, you're absolutely right, Rob. Yeah. Um, obviously, numerous battery technologies are being touted as, as as potential replacements for sort of obviously traditional uh, line batteries. Um, what threat does an evolving battery landscape pose to a uh, to deep green? Well, if you look at the markets that nickel and copper and cobalt and manganese are used for, batteries are a new market. Right, they're a very very important one. Um, but the development life cycle of a new battery technology is quite long. And the reason for that is because it comes with a lot of danger. You know, we saw with Samsung and their S7 when they played with battery tech, you know, they overheated and they started exploding. Yeah. And, you know, that's a risk that I don't think car makers will take. I, I think they've also invested so heavily in NMC. And we've seen people like Volkswagen and Tesla and others commit to the NMC path. Um, that I think we're we're safe there for a period of time. And and look, I hope there are new battery technologies because I worry about where the world's going to get the metals to meet the demand that I see coming. Yeah. And so, my view there is it's no risk, and I wish them every success because, you know, we it's in all of our interest to move to uh, the green economy. And we need to you know, not be worried about anything other than how quickly we can do it with the lowest impact supply from an environmental and a social impact supply of these virgin ores um, and eventually recycled ores. So, so I don't think we will be in this business in 50 or 60 years time. I think we'll be, I hope, we won't be collecting metals anymore. I hope society will have changed. You know, I hope we'll be recycling sufficiently. But recycling is not an option today, primarily because you can't recycle what you don't have. And we need a mass injection of these new metals so we can recycle them. Yeah, certainly. Um, want to slowly wrap this up. So, um, so what's the future for Deep Green um, and, and ocean mining? And I suppose looking over the next five or ten years, Mm. Well, it's getting a new industry started is bloody hard. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's also very rewarding. I mean, I'm attracted to impossible challenges and, wow, I got this one right. <laughs> yeah. But it's also a lot of fun because what we're doing um, has, I mean, it's so interesting. You know, we're dealing with our own geopolitics. We're dealing with uh, you know, we're finalizing royalties at the moment. And, you know, a lot of people have got a view on those royalties. It'll all be done shortly. But, um, you know, we're, we're going to a new supply. We're looking to disrupt a big industry <coughs> in land-based mining. Um, so, you know, our future is, you know, we, we don't underestimate the challenges. We're very fortunate to have some amazing shareholders. Um, we, you know, we, we are constantly sort of every year we're spending lots of money getting our feasibility done, planning to move into production. Uh, our first 
year of production is still planned for 2023. And, you know, we have a, a resource that is very scalable. You know, we, we, there's no reason why we could not become the largest producer of nickel and cobalt in the world. And, you know, we have ambitious plans, you know, and we're, um, but, but it'll be a, a journey with lots of unforeseen things. Uh, it'll be a journey that will involve lots of partnerships because we're not going to try and do it all ourselves. Um, right now, we have about 200 people employed on the project, but the Deep Green team is only 20 people. Yeah. So we look to bring in partnerships where they can contribute their knowledge and expertise and assets um, to help us achieve these important goals. Yeah. Um, uh, last question. Um, as an entrepreneur, um, who do you sort of admire or look up to um, and get your aspiration from? Because obviously what you're doing is very unique, mm-hmm. um, whether many people have sort of tried it previously. Um so, yeah, who, who do you sort of look up to and maybe sort of try and, I suppose, follow follow what processes they may have done? It could be in a different industry as well. Mm. You know, I, I, I've been asked that before and I've, I've always come up short. I don't really have anyone that, you know, I, I think, oh, my God, you know, I want to, I want to take his life lessons. And, um, you know, I'm a great absorber of information. I like... I like, uh, you know, meeting people and listening to how they've achieved what they've achieved. Um, you know, I think, you know, from my perspective, um, you know, the most influential, you know, people around me are the team of great people that I've brought along the journey on this project, not just the team, but also the shareholders and the other stakeholders. And, um, you know, we're doing something very new and in, in a very different way. So, yeah, I come up a bit short on that question, Rob. Um, I mean... Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, I was going to ask you one more last question. And again, hopefully I'm not putting you right on the spot. Um, but if there was someone that you would like to hear on this podcast, um, who would you recommend that I interview <laughs> and, and why? Um <clears throat> Who would you interview? Uh, I'd probably say, well, look, I, Robert Friedland is a good friend of mine. I, I'm sure you've, if you haven't had him, he's entertaining. I haven't, I haven't yet. I'm trying, um, I'm trying to reach out to him. So, uh, um, I'm not sure if he'd be listening to this podcast, but, um, I am reaching out to him. So, uh, yeah, it's someone I would like to get on, on the, uh, on this show. He's such a character, right? It, it must drive Robert crazy. Uh, to have such a valuable, amazing resource, you know, that he has in Ivanhoe that, you know, never quite gets the recognition that, um, yeah. Yeah. All right, Joe, I'd really appreciate your time. I'm sure the audience would be um, really delighted to hear hear this, uh, and obviously listen to this episode and listen to the things that you're doing because it is unique um, and I think it's definitely got a lot of scope and it, it's something new, something disruptive um, and I, I think it's something that, that will work um, and yeah, you could, uh, you could be opening up a def- uh, definitely a, a, a new, new part of mining, a new industry or or a different area of where we can get certain, um, certain obviously metals from. So yeah, no. Uh, hopefully, the audience has got a lot of um, a, a lot of value from this. Um, if any of them 
got any questions, I know you did mention your um, email earlier in the podcast, but if anyone's got any questions they want to ask you, um, obviously they can email you. Are you also on social media at all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, hit me up on LinkedIn or Instagram or um, or email me at jared at deep.green. Yeah, and what I'll do is I'll get your um, details and put them in the show notes accompanying this so people can um, reach out to you on Instagram and LinkedIn, etc. So um, um, I'll put those on in, in the actual show notes. Um, alternatively, if you want to contact myself, you can uh, email me and I can pass um, any messages on. Uh, my email address is rob at mining-international.org. Um, like I said, really appreciate your time, Gerard, um, providing, obviously, with this uh, unique content. And I've certainly le- learned a lot from it. Um, so I appreciate if anyone's listening who... Uh, if you can share this podcast, especially if people um, would be interested in it, which I imagine a lot of people would be. So I appreciate if you can pass the pass the um, podcast on to other ones, share to uh, to your friends, colleagues, etc. Um, also, you can visit the website, which is www.digdeeptheminingpodcast.com. Um, if they're unable to subscribe to certain um, podcast channels. Um, and yeah, um, appreciate if you can, uh, give feedback on, on this episode and other episodes, um, because obviously your comments matter. Um, and yeah, I've obviously found this, found this episode very uh, fascinating and, yeah, um, watch this space for the future. So until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining!